Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Bibles and open up with me to the book of First Samuel, and uh, this is where we're going to sit. We're going to be in First Samuel uh, all the way through the month of August, and we're going to be focusing on this idea that we want a king. And uh, ultimately, we're going to look specifically at the contextual nature of Israel's desire and really demand for this. When we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8 through 10, and that's primarily where we're going to sit. But in order for us to understand how Israel gets to that point, it's important that we take some time to stop and overview the first bit of uh, 1 Samuel. But it's even uh, important to go beyond that, and that's where we're going to start. But I want to give you this main idea before I forget. And before we move past it, so if you get nothing else out of today, I want you to grab hold of this statement, this sentence, and it is that true success is only achieved when the Lord leads. True success is only achieved when the Lord leads. And we're going to see a story, a narrative in Scripture today that specifically emphasizes this truth and brings it to light Maybe even in a way that we've never really understood or comprehended. So I'm excited to walk through this with you. Now, to, to pause a minute and go back. We're going to go back in time. Um, ultimately, before 1 Samuel, to understand a history of what's leading up to 1 Samuel. And so if you go back in time, and we're not going to go all the way back, but if you go back to the book of Exodus, we see the nation of Israel enslaved in Egyptian captivity. And uh, specifically, what we know is Israel is the 12 tribes of Israel. And does anyone know what the 12 tribes of Israel were determined by? Can anyone tell me? What was it? The sons of Jacob, okay? Jacob was this guy in scripture and God renames him Israel. So when we think about that, it brings a little context to this. We sometimes just think of Israel. We don't really know the context behind it. But Jacob was renamed Israel and he has 12 sons and that becomes what we see in the rest of scripture as the 12 tribes of Israel. So they're in Egyptian captivity and God raises up a man to bring them out of Egyptian captivity named Moses. And Moses, uh, as we know from the text of Scripture, doesn't feel very confident in this, but God nonetheless leads him and guides him through this on this quest to ultimately take the nation of Israel out of Egyptian captivity and to the promised land. Now, before they can even get very far from Egypt, tragedy strikes and the people become discontent. And they start complaining, and they start saying, it was better in Egypt. What were they thinking? But don't we do the same? And so ultimately, this leads them into 40 
years of wandering in the desert wilderness because God said, no, this whole generation that has completely forgotten what I've done is not going to enter the promised land. And so you're going to wander until all of you die off and your kids are going to inherit it. Well, Moses ends up in that same group of people because he responds in the wrong way. In this circumstance, God says, Moses, you're not going to end up entering the promised land. So we see Moses give his speech. At the end of his life, he passes away, and God raises up another leader named Joshua. Joshua leads the Israelite people into the promised land. He leads them on conquest across the land, and ultimately this results in the settling of Israel within the promised land, but it didn't take long, and now they enter this cycle of disobedience and idolatry. And so really what this brings us to is a period known as the period of the Judges. Everyone say Judges. And I would encourage you, if you've never read through the book of Judges, do so. It is an excellent read, but it highlights this secular pattern of sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and then silence, where the people of Israel continually come back and they sin against God, and then uh, there's trial, they're put into captivity, and then they plead before God. God raises up a judge to deliver them and bring them out. There's a period of silence, and then they repeat the cycle again and again and again. Now, interestingly enough, this brings us to 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel begins really at the tail end of the period of the judges. And in fact, 1 Samuel is often recognized as the last appointed judge before we entered a period of kingship within the nation of Israel. And to put it into perspective, the whole of judges can seem like, wow, how did they do this so often and so quick? But the whole of judges spans more than 400 years the period where they had judges raise up, they were in this cycle. Some say right around 430 years when you include Samuel and his uh, judgeship there. Okay, So this is a long span of time when you're considering this cycle that they're in and what is going on. But this ultimately brings us to Samuel. And Samuel, in our Bibles is divided up into two specific books, first and second Samuel, and this was simply for scroll length purposes, okay? This would have been all one entity, so you can should see them as all one entity as they connect and they carry on and they intertwine amongst each other. But the main characters throughout this Old Testament narrative are really Samuel, Saul, and David. Those are the three main characters that we see throughout First and Second Samuel, and they play a numerous variety of different roles in the midst of that. Then we have all these sub-characters, and there's many other individuals that are part of this larger story. But specifically, we're going to look at one section of this narrative, uh, but it's crucial that we, as a church, strive to understand the whole. All of this ultimately leads to God's redemptive plan, fulfilling itself in the established lineage of Jesus, our Messiah. Okay? And so, when we enter into 1 Samuel chapter 1, what we encounter is we encounter this young lady named Hannah. And this is really where Samuel's story begins. And Hannah is 
she's the wife of a man named Elkanah, and she cannot have children. And she is discouraged and distressed by this. And she pleads with the Lord season after season, year after year. She pleads with the Lord that God would give her a child. And she endures through all of this. And this ultimately leads her to make a vow to the Lord in uh, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1. Where she, uh, says, it says she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. But will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So she makes this commitment to the Lord. And in fact, it was such a intense pleading with the Lord that the priest was convinced that this lady was drunk as she was praying. And she rises up and uh, the, the, the priest says, go and may your request be granted. And uh, the Lord honors the request of Hannah and she gives birth to a son. She names him Samuel. And just as she vowed, when he got to the point that he was weaned, she brought him to the temple and she committed him to the service of the Lord. And so this was Samuel's beginning, and ultimately this beginning leads to Hannah praying this prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that we're going to come back to at the end of our time today. But from here forward, we start to see how Samuel's uh, education is growing, his ministry develops. And, and in the midst of all of this, you have another sub-character who's the priest. His name is Eli. Everyone say Eli. And Eli served in the priesthood lineage established by God, but his sons were not good guys. Okay? Now, just to get you to play along with me, I'm going to say that again, and I want you guys to just uh, respond and go, oh, okay? So just as if we're in the story in the midst of this, Eli had two sons, and they were not good guys. Oh, that was great. I love it. Okay? And in fact, if you look at chapter 2, verses 22, um, uh, verse, starting in verse 22, it said, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. Now you might wonder, well, what were they doing? And if you were to glance back at verse 12, you would see, verse 12 of chapter 2, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not, everyone say not, they did not know the Lord. Now that would seem to be a problem in the priesthood House of the Lord. These are the people who are supposed to be administering the sacrificial system put in place by the law. And so Eli was aware of all these things being said about his sons, and he confronts them on it, but he doesn't ever really do anything beyond that. And so here are these two guys. They're serving the, the sons of Eli. The sons of Eli are serving in the temple. They didn't know the Lord. And Eli's aware of it does nothing. And neither does the nation of Israel. And 
ultimately what the Lord brings to mind to Eli is that your family time as the priesthood in the temple is coming to an end because you have profaned my name. You have not held to this. You have not ultimately allowed me to lead and guide this. Samuel, however, continues to grow in service to the Lord and the Lord himself calls Samuel and establishes him as a prophet and also a leader amongst the people. Now, I want to bring us to 1 Samuel chapter 4 now, okay? Everything we've summarized is just a summary of the first three chapters, and I would encourage you, if you haven't already done so, start at chapter 1, read through so you get the full picture of what's happening here. But then in 1 Samuel chapter 4, this is after the Lord has called Samuel as a prophet and established him in the temple in such a way. And look at what verse 1 says. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. So, to summarize what happens here, is Samuel becomes a prophet, and pretty quickly the rumblings start to start. They, they start to spread. And before long, the people are hearing this. They're, whoa! Samuel's been raised up as a prophet. Now, I want you to remember that this has been the cycle they've been in for over 400 years of seeing them in bondage, seeing these nations oppress them, and then God raises someone up, and all of a sudden they have victory, they're delivered, they have years of plenty. So what do you think the people are thinking? Oh, a prophet's raised up. The prophet's come. Guess what we're going to do? Let's go into battle. Here we go. We're going to defeat the Philistines. And yet nowhere here do we see that they sought the Lord for help. Rather, they assumed He was with them because they had this new prophet. I mean, come on. And so the first thing I want to emphasize in this narrative is that assuming the Lord's presence without first committing the battle to the Lord is a recipe for destruction. Assuming that God is with you without first saying, God, this is yours, or maybe more importantly, God, I can't do this on my own. I need your help here. If we don't first commit this battle to the Lord, then that's a recipe for disaster and destruction. So what happens next? Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. And when the people came to the camp... The elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They still didn't get it. What happened? Let us, get, uh, this, this makes me laugh. So I'm picturing this group of people and they're strategizing. Well, we lost. Can you believe we lost? They raised up a prophet and we lost. Something's wrong. What did we do wrong? What did we forget? Did you forget your armor? Did you forget to pray? What, what's going on here? And so their solution is, hey. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. 
So the people went to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, oh man, Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And this strikes fear into the Philistines, and they're like, oh my goodness, they have the ark. This has been the, destructi- the, the destruction of armies and nations pre- prior to us, and what are we going to do? And they end up in verse 9, it says, take courage and be men, O Philistines, let, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And verse 10 says, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his own home, and there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Whoa. This did not go as planned. What went wrong? How could this happen? The prophet was raised up. We brought the ark out. How is this, how is this taking place? Surely the time was ready for us to run into battle, right? The reality is, even when the nation of Israel grabbed the ark, they grabbed it as a token or a trophy. Look at what we have! We're undefeatable! No, you're not. God is. And so even in the transition of their minds of moving from this place of we're just going to go to taking the ark with them, they still had yet to realize their dependence upon the Lord. And so I ask you a question. What practices or images have you put your trust in apart from God? Is it a person? Is it a people? Is it a nation? Is it a thing? True success is only achieved when the Lord leads. Now what? The ark is gone. People are dead. Security is gone. Let's see what happens where the ark ends up. We're going to go to chapter 5 now. Okay? Turn with me to chapter 5. Chapter 5, 1 Samuel. says, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. 
Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of, of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath, so that so they brought the ark of God of Israel there, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. They sent the ark of God to Ekron, but as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now, pause a minute. Here's what this reveals as your second focal point in what takes place where the ark of the Lord goes. God doesn't need people to fight his battles. His people need God to fight theirs. There's a big difference. God doesn't need an army to accomplish what he's going to accomplish? The ark of the Lord ends up in this town and all of a sudden the people are afflicted. The people are deathly afraid of this ark. And realistically, these people are more afraid of this built piece of equipment than the nation of Israel was of their God. How often do we respond the same way? I'm so fearful of the coronavirus right now. But the judgment of God? Now, I'm not dismissing the fact that we shouldn't be cautiously fearful of a virus that is causing harm to people. Don't get me wrong on this, okay? But shouldn't we not at the same time be completely humbled before a God who is in control of all of this? And just like the nation of Ashdod, we get so focused on this one thing that we completely miss the very entity that has the power to take that away. And the nation of Israel who had seen God work, they had the same problem. And I think oftentimes so do we. But a shift takes place. The ark is returned to Israel because the Philistines definitely don't want that thing around them anymore. And in fact, the ark makes its way by itself. They basically hitch it to a couple of cows. 
and the cows go back. God brings himself back to Israel. He didn't even need people to carry the ark. But there's a cultural shift that happens. Let's turn over to chapter 7. Chapter 7 here. We're going to look at verses, starting at verse 3. The people, and I want you to picture, the ark returns. So imagine the celebration. And in the process of this, when Eli hears, okay, Eli the priest, when he hears that the ark is stolen and that his sons, his sons have died, he essentially falls backwards out of a chair, breaks his neck, and dies. Okay? So just as God had declared to Eli, hey, your family is no longer going to be priests in the household of Israel. That all happens in this timeline. Okay? So now Samuel is ministering, and in verse 3, it says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods, and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. Everyone say only. And He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Now, if you jump down further, in verse 6, it says, So they gathered at Mitzvah. They drew water. They poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have, get this, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. They had already won twice. It wasn't a hard decision. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. This is a big cultural shift here. Previously, they were gung-ho. We got a prophet. We got an ark. Let's go. Now they hear the Philistines are coming, and they're scared. So what did they do? The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb. He offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Now verse 10 gives me chills every time I read it. It says, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines. And he threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. God doesn't need an army to win his battles. What he needs is his people who are dependent upon him and him alone. It was God who had the victory here. And because God had the victory, the nation of Israel reaped the benefits of God's victory. And yet how often do we strive to reap the benefits of our own victory without committing 
the battle to the Lord. And we lose. And then we wonder, why, God? True success is achieved only when the Lord leads. Now, as we prepare to close this, I want to have you flip back to Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2. 1 Samuel 2. And I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come forward. In 1 Samuel 2, Hannah prays this after God has answered her prayer. And I want you to, to, to listen to the words she uses here. And recognize the perspective that she took. It says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no, not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in the darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. For the next several weeks, we're going to spend most of our time in the next three chapters of 1 Samuel. Chapters 8 through 10. But before we can go there, we need to answer a couple of questions. And so these are what I want you to take away today. First off, who or what is the God we serve? Who or what is the God we serve? And I want you to think beyond just the church answer. We serve the God of the Bible. We serve the God who sent Christ to die for us because the reality is for us as a church family, the answer to this question lies within what we spend our time focusing on. What we see the purpose of us as a people as. And so I challenge us together to think through who or what is the God we serve. Because I don't know about you, but in reading a story like this in 1 Samuel, I sure want it to be the God of the Bible. Second question. How are we going into battle? Sprinting with confidence or on my knees in repentance? 
Church, this is, was the difference between Israel having success and Israel being defeated. What is our posture as we go into battle? True success is only achieved when the Lord leads. Heavenly Father, as we challenge each other with this, may we wrestle with the truth of this in application today. God, we read these accounts where you do not need a people to defeat armies and accomplish your purposes. Rather, you use people for those purposes. But God, how often we do our own thing and stray away from what you have called us to as your people. Forgive us, Lord. God, renew in us a desire to be a people who walks in step with you in a a fear, a holy fear that you are God, the God of the universe. May we put you in the place of leadership as we go to battle from this place, we pray in Jesus' name.